Thank you, Nathan, and good morning, everybody. Welcome this morning to Bethany. I'm glad you could be with us here in the sanctuary and across the street in the chapel as well and some online. Uh, we're going to take a moment and pray, and then we're continuing a series about Jesus' relationship with time. And this morning in particular, a very annoying phrase that Jesus uses, a little while. It's too ambiguous for most of us, and we're going to talk about that, so let's pray. Father, thank you that we have these moments together, and I pray that uh, you would give us instruction and help us to, to enable us to hear what you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would say to each of us individually in order that we might be shaped to be people of hope even in our waiting and even in the midst of the, the uncertainties that certainly are present in all of our lives. Thank you for this. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Many years ago, Donald Rumsfeld was the Secretary of Defense under the, uh, President uh, Bush during the 9-11 and post-9-11 world in which we found ourselves, beginning of the 21st century. His most famous quote is uh, where we begin this morning. This is what he said. As we know, he's talking about fighting wars. He says, as we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are things that we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. And if one looks throughout history, uh, we see that it is this last category that tends to be the most difficult one. Now, I'm just going to challenge that this morning with due respect to Donald Rumsfeld. And I'm going to say the things that we don't know that we don't know we don't know them, so they don't matter, right? The thing that is most troubling to the disciples in this passage becomes the thing that they know that they don't know. And that often is what bothers us as well, because if we know that we don't know something, we want to know it. We want to be omnipotent. We want to be in the know. And some of us in the room will not rest until the unknown becomes known. And we're going to fixate on the thing that we know that we don't know. And that's exactly what happens in John 16. Jesus is speaking to the disciples just before his arrest and ultimate crucifixion. And he gives them three things that they can know with certainty and one thing that they won't know. And they fixate on the thing that they can't know. Uh, and that, as Jesus sh shows us, is not helpful. When you know so much, why do you focus on what you don't know? And this is what we're going to look at this morning in John 16. Jesus, just before his arrest and crucifixion, he reveals these three things that the disciples can know and one thing that they, that they can't know. And let's look at those together and see what they have to say to us today. Uh, what, what could the disciples know? First of all, uh, this entire text is framed in uh, uh, verse 1 and the end of the chapter by Jesus' desire that we not fall away, verse 1, and that we have peace, verse 33. So Jesus wants us to be faithful and to have peace in our hearts no matter what happens. But then, scattered throughout John 16, here's the first thing that Jesus says that you can know. You can know this. You can know that you will have trouble and failure. You can know it. And in verse 32 of John 16, Jesus says... Uh, hey, uh, the day is coming, indeed has come, when all you'll be scattered each to his own home and you're going to leave me alone. You will deny me. In other words, you're going to fail. Now, we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. 
But uh, this morning, we want to focus not on the disciples' failure, but on the, on the trouble that disciples will face. And so Jesus understands, here in this text, that it will often be religious people who are most intent on silencing Christ followers. Let's uh, look, at, look at verse uh, 2. Uh, the day is coming when they... Your, your tormentors, your persecutors, they'll put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think they're doing God a favor, offering service to God by, by, by killing you. So Jesus understands something here that it'll often be religious people who are most intent on silencing Christ followers. And let me just make a couple of observations. First of all, this seems counterintuitive to us because we've set up a dualistic world in which we think that the people with white hats all claim to be uh, Christ followers or believe in God, uh, at the least theists. There's the, there's the good guys who believe in God. There's the bad guys who don't believe in God. And the ones who don't believe in God are doing all the nasty stuff. And the ones who do believe in God are doing all the good stuff. And these two groups don't like each other. And there are wars going on between people who, who claim God and people who claim there is no God. That's rarely the case. It does happen. But it's rarely the case throughout history that the biggest and ugliest battles have been between people who say there is no God and people who say there is a God. No, no. Both sides claim God. Both, both sides claim the moral high ground all the time. And this is what Jesus is saying. People will persecute you, and in persecuting you, the followers of Christ, they will think they're doing God a favor, right? So uh, Christ's followers... Are, let me just say this, Christ followers are often historically persecuted in Jesus' name. I'll give you a few examples. Teresa of Avila was a, was a nun who sought to embody generosity, simplicity, and contemplative prayer. She, like St. Francis, was a bit discouraged by the increasing um, lust for power among religious leaders and the, the, the wealth of religious leaders, and so she goes after this path of contemplative prayer, simplicity, purity, and she begins to found some convents and uh, with the help of St. John of the Cross, some monasteries as well. And these convents and monasteries begin to thrive and she's teaching people to pray and know God and love God and do works of charity and cross social divides. And yet, uh, the thing that you need to see here is her simple faith was a rebuke to power so that Pope Gregory, her contemporary, wrote this about her before declaring her to be a heretic. Teresa of Avila is a filthy and immoral nun who is indecent in the highest degree, simply using her busy efforts as an excuse for indulging in dissipated lust. The battle wasn't between Teresa and the atheists. The battle was between Teresa and the Pope. Martin Luther Here's 95 problems I have with the Catholic Church. His refusal uh, to recant and repent of his 95 problems ultimately led to his excommunication in God's name as a heretic. And Luther was no saint either because when there was a radical reformation, Menno Simons, who founded the Mennonites, who founded the Anabaptists, which means to be baptized a second time, Menno Simons taught that adults should be baptized, not infants. And this is what Luther said. He said, if he wants to be baptized a second time, hold him under until he drowns. How charitable is that? So you've got these, in, kind of these in-house battles going on, and it's been going on all throughout church history. Sophie Scholl and Dietrich Bonhoeffer both sought to expose uh, the idol of nationalism and the sins of racism and the notion that the, the weak aren't worthy of living, and this was during the rise of the Reich in the 1930s. Bonhoeffer, a pastor, rejected uh, Hitler's call to tie 
uh, the church to state loyalty. Bonhoeffer said, no, the church should not have the Nazi flag in the sanctuary. And, and he was viewed as a result as a heretic, marginalized, ultimately executed. Sophie Scholl, uh, as a 21-year-old, distributed literature in the, in the face of op op opposition from her own pastor, who said, look, you never, you never speak ill against the government. Romans 13, right? Whoever's in power, God's put them there. Submit. And so she also was ultimately executed. She was beheaded by, by the Nazis. But some of her persecution came from kind of within the family. Bob Ekblad um, runs a ministry called Terra Nueva up in the Skagit Valley. Uh, he moved up there in 1995. My wife and I uh, left there uh, in, in 95, so we just overlapped a very, for a very short time, but uh, his ministry was thriving around the year 2000, and then when 9-11 happened, American flags went up all over the place, and people said, uh, we don't like immigrants, and his ministry was a ministry to immigrants and migrant farm workers. He was teaching Bible studies to migrant farm workers, and the, the, the churches who were supporting him, some of them withdrew their support, send those people home, we don't want them here. So, so the in-house fighting happens all the time, right? And, and, and Jesus is saying in John 16, verses 1 through 4, that people who will resist faithful Christ followers will think they're offering God a service. So Jesus is warning us here about the in-house fighting that we'll do. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 52, when Stephen gives a sermon uh, in, the, in the temple to the religious leaders of the day, the Sanhedrin, Stephen says, look, it's always been this way. Look back in history. What prophet did God's people not persecute? Did they persecute Jeremiah? Yep. Did they persecute um, Ezekiel? Yep. Did they persecute Isaiah? Yep. Uh, how about Amos? Yep. All, like all of them persecuted. Moses, they rejected his leadership. Like God's people have a tremendous history of rejecting God's revelation in God's name. And, and Jesus is simply saying here, hey, don't be surprised. One thing you can know for certain is there'll be this in-house fighting. And why does this happen? It happens because we become concerned with the wrong things. And we overlook the most important things. And what I mean by that is the church has a long history of arguing about minutia while missing the main message. Arguing about women in leadership. Arguing about the form of baptism. Arguing about the age of baptism. Arguing about marriage and divorce. Arguing about whether to use the word inspired or inerrant or fallible or authoritative when, using, when talking about the Bible. And we divide over these things and we argue over these things and we throw rocks at one another over these things. And meanwhile... These things that we can't really know with absolute certainty, the Bible is quite clear about other things that we ignore. The Bible is clear about loving our enemies, loving the weak, loving the poor, crossing social divides, caring for immigrants, throwing parties for people who need love, allowing ourselves to be ravished by God's love through creation, through fellowship, through the privilege of living each day, through each meal we cook, through each dish we write, through each line of code we write, uh, through, through, through caring for each child, doing everything, as Paul says, as an act of love. Whatever you do, do to the glory of God. This is simple faith, but this simple faith is not viewed as Christianity by some. Because faith 
has devolved so that it's often less about loving God and loving people and more about having a precise doctrinal expression of the atonement, scripture authority, right view of marriage, right view of Christ's return, right view of politics. And when that happens, people who are the real presence of Jesus, loving enemies, crossing social divides, caring for immigrants, feeding the, 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 the hungry, healing, praying, serving, these people will be persecuted by the church. And here's Jesus, you can know that will happen. You can know it. So one thing I want you to know is certainty, and, and then uh, this is going to happen. Then Jesus says in uh, uh, verse 4, I've said these things so that when the hour comes, you'll remember. And I'll just say to you, this, is really, this has kept me from quitting many times. Because anytime you're trying to do the right thing, the Bible is filled with this. When you try to do the right thing, I mean, we think if you do the right thing, good things will happen. That's what we all think, right? Because we're kind of taught that. If you study, you'll get a good grade. If you run, your pulse will go down. If you eat your vegetables, your colon will clean out somehow, right? Like, all, like good things will happen. Like just do the right thing and it's all going to just unfold swimmingly. And here Jesus is saying, no, not at all. Do the right thing, and you can take it to the bank. Someone's going to be mad at you precisely because you did the right thing. So um, the reason this is coming from quitting is because I come back to this over and over again. I go, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, not everybody is going to think I'm amazing. And, and that's super helpful for me because I don't like conflict. I, you, some of you don't know me well enough to know that, but I, like, I want everybody to be happy. I want everyone to love each other, and I especially want everyone to love me, right? So that, so that people go, oh, yeah, you know, that was the best word ever. And, you know, and, and, and here's the thing. No, because if, you're, like, if you think that way, then you're trying to try be popular. And if you're going to try to be popular, you're not leading, you're following. Don't try to be popular. And by the way, don't, don't in reaction to people who are trying to be popular, don't try to be unpopular either. My friend is a pastor who goes, well, with all the empty seats, we must be doing something right. That's not so wise. <laughs> maybe you're doing something wrong. I don't know. Maybe. But don't try to be popular. Don't try to be unpopular. Try to be faithful. Do you understand? All of us in the room, just be faithful. Love God, love people. Because that's what's needed. And that's, that's the real faith. And Jesus said that. He said, look, you got to have this, this vertical thing going because in Matthew 7, he says, many will say to me in that day, hey, look at all this good stuff we did in your name. We healed, we cast out demons. Jesus said, yeah, but here's the problem. You never knew me. You're called to love God and you didn't love God. But then in Matthew 25, Jesus will also say, hey, come and enter into the kingdom. I was hungry, you fed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was in prison, you visited me. When did we do that? Anyone you serve in my name, you're serving me. I'm calling you to love God and love your neighbor. That's Christianity. Not your capacity to defend your precise, linguistically crafted doctrinal statement. No. Love God, love people, drop your mic. That's it. That's the Christian life. Yeah, but this would be terribly daunting if this is all we heard from Jesus. Oh, you love God. What, what, like, how do I even do that? I mean, should I pray more? Should I read more? Should I study more? Should I journal? Should I fast? What does it mean to love God? And by the way, like, of all the needs in the world, I'm overwhelmed. What need am I? Like, how do I find my pathway forward 
to love people because there are too many, there are too many needs. There are addiction crises. There are marriages in crisis. There are youth in crisis. There's a need for mentors. There's a need to shelter people living on the streets. There's a need to cross social divides. There's a need to care for the environment. There's, there's, there's human trafficking. Like, how do we know our role? And it can be paralyzing. You've seen that YouTube video, maybe, where the guy's checking out at the grocery line and the checker goes, you want paper or plastic? And then it, he plays in his mind and he just says, I can't buy anything. And he runs out. Because like that single decision paralyzes him. Yeah, so how do I, like what does it mean love God, love people? Well, uh, <laughs> Jesus says, second thing you can know will empower you to love God and love people. And what's that second thing? You will receive the Holy Spirit. That's in verses 5 through 13. Know this. You have the Holy Spirit at your disposal, enabling you to love God and love people. But you don't have, you may not use the Holy Spirit, but you have it. Sometimes uh, uh, truth seems terribly inaccessible. Like as if you need to know Greek and Hebrew and church history in order to know God. But Jesus is telling us in this text that the Holy Spirit will come, verse 13, and guide you into all truth. And Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, where Paul says that the, the, the revelation that we need most will not come from parsing the text with, with Greek, will not come from filling notebooks with, with uh, you know, podcasts, lectures for people like me. Look, what you need ultimately isn't just stuff in your head. What you need ultimately, what I need, what all of us need, is a revelation from God, and revelation comes from the Holy Spirit. Second, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, what eye has not seen, what ear has not heard, what your mind can't even comprehend, God reveals to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. So you, you need to know how to love God, what spiritual disciplines to engage in. You need to know how to love people, what spiritual gifts you have, how to engage uh, uh, horizontally in this world, how to spend your time, how to spend your money. You need to know you need revelation, and that revelation comes from the teacher, uh, verses 5 to 13 of this text, the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. And the good news is, Holy Spirit's yours. And when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, then this book that is just a book otherwise becomes alive. When the Holy Spirit speaks to you, the book becomes alive. And I hope you've had this happen in, in your life. I've had it happen before where uh, I'm just reading my Bible and revelation from the Holy Spirit comes that breaks my heart open. I was a pastor in Friday Harbor, as some of you know, and I was there for three years in the San Juan Islands. I was there six ultimately, but in like my third year in, I was so done with being a pastor. I didn't sign up for it. I was gonna be there six weeks and now I'm in my third year. And it was gonna be, be interim and now it's permanent. And I'm, I'm discouraged and I wanna quit. And I'm, and I'm reading Jeremiah, and I'm like, I've called a guy in Idaho to see if I can get on as a log home designer and builder, and I've, you know, I've thought about going back and getting a master's in city planning, and going back and getting a theology degree, and becoming a you know, professor, which is what I really wanted to do. So I've got all these ideas, I'm super discouraged, and then I'm reading, I'm just laying on the sofa reading my Bible one, one day, and I'm reading uh, Jeremiah chapter 20, and this is what Jeremiah's mad at God, because he too, felt tricked into his calling. Like he didn't want what he had on his plate. And so he basically, I'm paraphrasing, but this is what he says. God, how dare you trick me? Like I never signed up for this. 
Who in the room has ever found themselves in a situation where you could say to God, I didn't sign up for this? Just raise your hand. Anybody in the room? Has that, that ever happened to you? Yeah, who signs up for cancer? Who's, who signs up for unemployment? Who signs up for, like, if you want to be married, who signs up for singleness? Who signs up for an implosion of a marriage? Nobody signs up. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll take a dose of cancer, please. And while you're at it, you know, throw in a dysfunctional marriage. That's me. Thank you, Jesus. Nobody. Like, so here I am in a calling that I'm not, that I really don't want. And then Jeremiah says, so I said, God, these messages you're giving me to speak, I'm not going to say them anymore. I'm just going to hold them inside. Because every time I speak, somebody's mad at me. That's Jeremiah. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. That's what I'm going to do too. I'm not going to speak anymore. I'm done. I'm done. And the very next verse, Jeremiah says, but... When I held it in, it became a fire inside, destroying my innards. That's my paraphrase, right? Like, it was just, like not speaking was destroying me more than speaking. So he said, I must speak. And I read that. It was like the Holy Spirit breaking me open, saying, Richard Dahlstrom, that is you. You don't want to speak, but you're called to. And poor Donna, my wife's baking cookies in the kitchen. And I just start sobbing. I'm just weeping. And she goes, what's wrong? You okay? I go, I'm called. I'm called. I have to do this. I don't want to do it. But I have to. It's the Holy Spirit. And that ultimately led to me making peace with my calling, but not without some tears first. And here's the point. You need to know the life for which you're created. Well, how do you know that? You need the Holy Spirit. You need the power then to live into that calling. Well, how do you, how, where do you find that power? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to know when to be silent, when to shut up, or when, when to shut up and when to speak. <laughs> you need to know. How do you know? Well, it's, it's the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. You don't need a, like a guidebook. You need the living, indwelling Spirit to be in you who you cannot be on your own. And good news, the Spirit's coming. Jesus said, that's why I had to go away. If I didn't go away, you wouldn't get the Holy Spirit. But I'm going away so that you can know you will have the Holy Spirit. Now, this rift that Jesus was talking about earlier when he said people would think they're doing God a service by persecuting you, this rift comes about because people have the text without the Holy Spirit. And when I have the text without the Holy Spirit, what I do is I tear the text apart and I put it back together again but in so doing, I suck the life out of it. And this results in the fruits of the flesh. Arrogance, fighting, judgment, labeling, dividing, gossiping. And this is not the purview of the left or the right. It's all of our problem to the extent that we are kind of religious without the Holy Spirit. Because if I'm religious without the Holy Spirit, bad stuff happens in God's name over and over and over again. Can I remind you, inquisitions, colonialism, slavery, sanctioning, uh, sanctioning uh, uh, nationalism in Jesus' name. I mean, this, this is the stuff that happens when the Holy Spirit is gone. Phil Yancey, the author, he, he, in sharing his testimony, says that he, the church in which he grew up, his pastor uh, was deeply opposed to the ministry of Martin Luther King Jr., and he nicknamed Martin Luther King from the pulpit. He called him Martin Lucifer because he was opposed to racial reconciliation. This guy, seminary graduate, knows Greek, knows the text, preaches, loves the cross, 
takes communion like you and I will in a moment and calls Martin Luther King Martin Lucifer? Yes. Yes. Why? Because listen, if I have ministry without the Holy Spirit, it's not a ministry. It's destructive. So, boy, do we need to hear this now. Because in contrast to that, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, is what? Oh, that's right. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, generosity, service, crossing social divides, turning the other cheek, loving not just your friends, but your enemies, throwing parties, not just for those who pay you back, but those who could never pay you back. And people who are filled with the Spirit end up looking like Jesus, and hello, that's the goal that we display Christ. The third thing Jesus says we can know, he says, hey, know this, I'm going to the Father and returning. I'm going. I'm leaving. He says in verse 5, verse 7, verse 10, verse 17, verse 28, the emphasis in all these verses is Jesus returning to the Father. And if you just read the whole Gospel of John, one of the key themes in the Gospel of John is Jesus' relationship with the Father that Jesus was in relationship with the Father in his humanity so that he would say often uh, things uh, not my own, like my teaching is not my own, my judgment, my authority, my work, my life is not my own. Everything that I am, says Jesus, comes because I'm in relation with the Father. I and the Father are one, chapter 10, verse 30. In prayer, Jesus says this regarding the Father, you, Father, are in me and I am in you. I'm going to the Father. So Jesus, what's beautiful here is Jesus has this, this confidence in his relationship with the Father that enables Jesus then, no matter what is on his plate, it enables Jesus to serve others even when he himself is overwhelmed. And you read this most profoundly in John chapter 13, Jesus knowing, we read it in 13, Jesus knowing he's about to be um, arrested, betrayed, unjustly tried, beaten, and executed. Knowing this, it says, Jesus also knew that he was returning to the Father. And then it says, because he knew he was returning to the Father, he then had the capacity to take the towel and get down on his knees and as the servant that he is, wash the disciples' feet. In other words, what enabled him to serve out of what I call a full cup? Well, his cup is filled because he knows his destiny. And by the way, so do you. I, this is what Jesus said, remember? Uh, you and me and I and you, John chapter 17. And then he goes on and what does he say? Them, the disciples, that's us. Them in us. So here's Jesus. You and me, I and you, them in us. Where, where are we going? <laughs> the Father. Now, I, you can argue about the geography of that. Is it up? Is it the Father come down, as N.T. Wright says? Here's the deal. I don't know, so I'm not telling. Because I don't know. But I know that you're with the Father. That's what we know. We know who, not where. So, you know, you know uh, three things. First of all, uh, you know... Life's going to be hard. You're going to, people throw rocks at you a little bit. Second, you know that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit right now. 
So you're going to have all the resources to live into the life for which you're created. Third, you know that even as Jesus went to the Father, you're going to the Father. You know your destiny. What don't you know? Well, uh, you don't know how long Jesus is going to be away. This is John uh, chapter uh, 16 in the part that Nathan read, verse 16, listen. A little while you see me no longer, and a little while you see me. So you know, here's what you know. You've got the Holy Spirit, life's going to be hard, and you go to the Father. Oh, by the way, I mean, those are good things. Oh, by the way, I'll be gone a little while, and you won't see me, and then I'll be back. In a little while, I'll be back. What do the disciples fixate on? That. The only question they have in the entire chapter is this. What do you mean a little while? I mean, Jesus, we don't operate that way. Do you know, we all have this thing, Jesus, it's called Outlook, and we put stuff on our calendar, and, and like we call people, we make appointments, and uh, if we're up the managerial chain a little bit, maybe an assistant makes an appointment for us, but like we, like that, we need to know because I want to be there when you're coming back, and so I think I can't fill my calendar if I don't know. So Jesus, come on, a little while, no, unacceptable, like we want to know. So the entire, watch this, the entire world for these disciples about to descend into chaos, and they didn't know how long it would remain in chaos. The chaos would, be, would come because of Jesus' departure, but Jesus doesn't tell them how long he'll be gone. Here's all he says, in a little while, I'll return. And the subtext of that message is, in the middle of your darkness, in the middle of your loss, in the, in the middle of your uncertainty, you need to trust me that it won't last forever. But no, I will not give you a timetable. How, like, how long are you going to be in this ambiguity? Here's how long, a little while. And, and listen, we all know this is human nature. Why? Because we were all children once. And if you went to Disneyland, you, what did you say? Like, if you left from Seattle, I remember when we left from Seattle, we're, like, we're barely in Tacoma. And my kids are like this, are we in Disneyland yet? Like, when do we get to Disneyland? And well, it's still a little while away. Oh, a little while. Does that mean Olympia? Because they asked again then. <laughs> right? And Longview, and Portland, and Salem, and Medford, and Shasta, and Reading, and Stockton, and Fresno, and Turlock, <laughs> Bakersfield, the, the Grapevine, San Fernando Valley. When? A little while. That's when. What does that mean? Well, this is the way God has been all through history. Hey, Abraham, I want you to leave and go to a new country. Go to the land, I'll show you. Uh, and there, in that new country, I'm going to bless you. Wow, great. Uh, where is it? When am I going to get there? Oh, I'm not telling you that. Just follow me. You'll be there when? In a little while. Moses, I want you to lead these people through the desert. And you're going to lead them into the, into the promised land. How long? Like, what am I signing up for, Jesus, here? Uh, it looks like on my uh, Gaia app here, it looks like a 17-day hike, right? Or MapQuest says 17 days by, by car, four hours by bus. Whatever it is, yeah. Uh, how long? Oh, I'm not telling you. It's just a little while. Subtext, 40 years. Ha, says God to himself. David on the run, you know, you're going you're to be king, but first, uh, the guy in office is going to try and kill you twice, 
And you're going to hide in caves and feign insanity and, 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 and build a fake alliance with the Philistines all to save your skin so that you can ultimately fulfill the calling I've given you. Like, when will I be king? In a little while. Joseph, you have this dream and it's going to be fulfilled. You're going to be above your brothers. When? You know, in a little while. What does that mean? Oh, you know, after your brothers hate you, sell, toss you in a pit, sell you as a slave, you'll be hauled down to Egypt. You'll find favor with a prominent family, but the wife is going to try and seduce you. And when you say no, she'll frame you for sexual assault. You'll be tossed in prison and forgotten a little while. 24 years. A little while. Like, we hate this. Because if I know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, I'll just hold my breath until I get there. It's fine. No problem. But how long will I have cancer? Oh, you know, a little while. How long will this marriage not work? A little while. How long until I'm free, completely free from this addiction? A little while. How long unemployment? A little while. How long singleness? A little while. Jesus, I don't like that. Yeah, but here's the deal. The reason God does it this way is he wants us to learn to live as fully in the darkness as the light, as fully in the hunger as the plenty, as fully in the sickness as the health, as fully in the loneliness as in the community, as fully in the aging as in the youth. We're invited to learn how to rest in this exact moment. Why? Because in this exact moment, I have everything I need. What's that? I have the Holy Spirit. I have the reminder that, yeah, it's hard. I was already told, hard times will happen and I know my destiny. That's enough. And if we fixate on trying to figure out a little while, we run the risk of seeking to resolve what is unresolvable and it can destroy our faith. Some of you are waiting for a relationship. Some of you are waiting in relationship. Some of you are waiting financially. Some of you are waiting with health. In your waiting, be filled. In your waiting, rejoice in your destiny. In your waiting, use your spiritual gifts. Because here's the deal. Any timetable is an illusion. When will I be mature? When will I look exactly like Jesus? When will all the suffering end? When will every tear be dried from every eye? I'll tell you when. A little while but not right now. In the meantime, worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, as we approach this table, you desire to speak to us. We just want to take a moment and sit with the dissonance in which we find ourselves, the waiting. Waiting because of aging parents. Waiting because of crying children. Waiting because of unemployment. Waiting because of cancer waiting because of dissonance in a relationship. But in our waiting, thank you for what we can know, the fullness of your, of your life offered through the Holy Spirit and the bread and cup we celebrate now. May we receive all that you are and rejoice in this day, even though we suffer for a little while. We pray in Christ's name, amen.